0: You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at @DanielShortman Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure, The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production, The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. Happy New Year! We're kicking off 2021 on the Razor's Edge by speaking with our first public company CEO as a guest. George Arison is co-CEO of Shift Technologies, an online used car seller based in the West Coast. Think peers like Carvana and Vroom. This opens up a number of interesting questions. Used cars were a somewhat counterintuitive COVID-19 lottery winner, so how does the outlook hold up for 2021? What about the ongoing transition to e-commerce in general? And there's also the fact that Shift came public in Q4 of 2020 via a SPAC so we get to hear George's explanation for why that was the most compelling approach. I think this is a fun conversation that will offer some new insights, and I hope you'll enjoy it. For disclosures, I'm long Stitch Fix, which came up somewhere in here, and Akram is no position in stocks mentioned. George is, of course, co-CEO of Shift, and all public company disclosures on forward-looking information should apply. Let's get into it. George, thank you so much for joining us on the Razor's Edge. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me and excited to talk to you guys. So just before we get into more of the dynamics of Shift and what you're seeing this year and everything else, could you give us a little bit of just what brought you to this company? What's sort of give us some background for our listeners to get a sense of how you're coming to this business?
1: Sure, sure. So I'm kind of what people call, you know, serial entrepreneur, I guess. I've done several companies in my life. Um, The first company I started was called Taxi Magic which was a way to book, or is a way to book taxis on mobile phones. And obviously today, when we think about that, everyone thinks of Uber and Lyft and and whatnot. Back in 2007, there was no Uber, there was no Lyft, and there was no app on a phone. We were the first people to put an application on a BlackBerry that allowed you to do anything on demand, frankly. And and we focused on booking a taxi through an integration with a taxi fleet. Then did that company for three and a half years. Eventually, actually my green card was rejected, so I had to go figure out how to stay in the country and end up joining a larger company to, to do that and, and went to Google. So after, you know, after Google, I knew that I was going to start another company. spent a ton of time thinking about what that would be. My best friend from college and my co-CEO at Shift, Toby Russell, and I came up with this idea for this business. I spent a lot of time looking at it and figuring out how automotive works because I didn't actually frankly know anything about car purchase and eventually got going with Shift Um, You know, a little uh, over seven years ago, we incorporated December 9th, so like literally a week ago, seven years ago. We've been now at it, you know, since then, um, full time. And then it's been a fun journey. And, you know, I think it's been a really incredible experience to watch this company go from like we're working in my living room in the Castro with cars parked in front of my apartment to like, you know, being the business that we are now.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, publicly traded and. Six figure revenue or nine figure revenue, excuse me. And I think like, uh, yeah,
1: we're going to do, you know, about a, over 190, $195 million in revenue this year.
0: Right. So, not, not, not the concept of IBM. Right. <laughs> well, it's so give us a little bit on what makes shift, what is the business model and what makes shift sort of different? What? How does it fit into the? To the used car or to the car buying totally. space? So
1: the, the, when we started, like before the company existed, just kind of early, early days, the focus was on the financing and the warranty. So when you buy a car, you often buy it with financing, you might buy an extended warranty product, some kind of other add-ons. And if you're buying from a dealer, those are very easy to get, like it's super, super easy to buy those things. And if you're buying from a private party seller, like you're selling part of me, that's a lot harder. And so our initial thing was like, can we bring that dealer quality to the private party transaction? And uh, that's how we thought about it first. As the more time we spent in the market, it became clear you couldn't do that. You actually had to like own the transaction if you wanted to offer a good financing and a good warranty. So we got into the transaction business kind of indirectly through what we initially wanted to do. Um, today, you know, our focus is acquire client primarily from consumers. So the person has a car to sell, they come to ship.com, submit that car information to us. We price that car for them, and then, and then the car can be sold to Shift. And then we recondition the cars that we sell with we two tiers of reconditioning, certified in value. Value are cars that are over eight years old and over 80,000 miles. We're the only e commerce website where you can buy these older cars, um, frankly, and nobody else doesn't even touch them. Lastly, you can buy the car from Shift, and you can do it in one of two ways. You can either buy a car online, and then we'll ship it to you, and you know you never see the car prior to buying it. Or you can book a test drive and have the car shop at your house and see it first and then purchase. Um, that's something that Shift offers that nobody else really offers either on of the e-commerce players of the idea of like car brought to you. When I first came up with that and we would do that, people are like, uh, you know, you're kind of nuts. But now, obviously, a lot more people are getting into the concept of like, hey, having the car delivered to you prior to purchase um, because even the regular dealers are now doing a lot more given COVID, right? So I think one of the things that's happened is that Dealers have realized that they need e-commerce and dealers have realized that they need to get to the consumer's location rather than having consumers come to them, which is kind of what we were, you know, five, six, seven years ago.
2: Cars to the home. Work from home, yeah. cars to the home.
0: Yep. So, you know, and the, the other players in this space, I think, you know, in doing the research, obviously Carvana is one that's been coming up a lot. Vroom is another one that went public this year. And I'm curious when you're trying to build this model you mentioned a few things there in terms of the cars to home i think in your filings they there's talk about software for the dealer but how do you sort of differentiate because it's ultimately you're trying to buy cars for cheaper than you sell them right like that's and i understand that but like how do you think about where the value add comes where you guys are able to to build your business around really i
1: mean look the the competitorship does not ruin Carvana. I have huge admiration for both of those companies. Carvana has done an incredible job in execution, and they've had you know a lot of advantages, but also incredible execution. Um, and they've done very, really well. I mean, it's a $45 billion company or something like that. So those are not really our competitors. They're more like our, our peers, or we are a peer to them. The combined market share for all three of us is less than 1% of the market. So uh, the traditional dealer, small dealers are, are our competitors. There's nearly 30,000 of them in the United States. And then there's another you know, kind of massive component of the market of private party where people sell first to each other, um, which equals almost what they buy from dealers. And so those are the competitors to, to shift in terms of where the, uh, the opportunity for, for market share uh, gains are. The kind of the way I think about differentiation vis-a-vis other, so all three of us are very different than a traditional dealer. to be very clear. Like we we, for us, e-commerce is the front store. You buy from us, Digitally, and then um, there's nowhere to kind of come to, to see us other than we have these warehouses that are like where we recondition cars, and you can shop there. And Carvana has these big vending machines, you can shop there, but that's not primarily how we sell. But where, the way in which I tend to compare Shift to Room and Carvana is the phone. Operationally speaking, Carvana and Shift are actually quite similar. We both believe very strongly you have to bring most things fully in house and do them yourself. So we do our own reconditioning. We do our own logistics uh, in the field. We employ the people who bring the car to you, et cetera. Um, now, Carvana goes a step further than us in that they own their financing business. So they do what's called captive lending and they finance those loans themselves. We've talked about how that's a really important thing to do long-term. In the near term, we're not big enough to do that ourselves. And so we use third parties to finance the loans. Carvana was built on the kind of foundation of DriveTime, which is a subprime lender for car purchases. And so they had the ability to do captive lending right away because that know-how and sizing already existed inside of in, inside Time. We kind of haven't done that yet because we're still in the early days of scaling. But everything else we do ourselves and, and that's really critical. So from the operational perspective, lots of similarities between Carvana and us. On the consumer experience side though, Vroom and Carvana are more alike and Shift is different. Uh, in as much as Vroom and Carvana's primary offering is buy online, have the car be shipped to you. Now, Room does it through third parties and Carvana does it through its own logistics, but in terms of consumer user feel like it's you bought online and the car arrives at your doorstep. Our model offers that, and that's a part of what we do, but really the fundamental difference uh, on the consumer experience is that we actually offer you a test drive first, meaning if you want to, you can see the car before you buy and then purchase it, in your driveway on an iPad device. Um, so it's still done in your home, it's all brought to you, but you see it prior to purchase, which a lot of consumers want to do. Because we offer that test drive, we then are able to sell a much broader spectrum of inventory. So if you go to Room's website, you know the average sale price will be something like 25, dollars dollars $27,000. And so that means that they're selling really expensive vehicles. Our average sale price will be somewhere between sixteen dollars and $18,000. And it's both because we sell more cars in that fourteen to $18,000, $20,000 range than they do as a percentage of our sales, but also because we sell a lot of cars that are below $12,000 in price. And you know that's actually a huge portion of the market is these older vehicles. We call them value cars. And we are the only ones that can touch those cars of the digital players because we offer a test drive because most consumers buying a value car want to be able to see it before they buy it.
0: So it's it's interesting. I'm first of all, pretty sure my first two first two or three cars were definitely in the value category. So I can sympathize yeah. with that price range. But the idea of the test, we're, because we think a lot about e-commerce and the adoption there and mm-hmm. a stock that we haven't talked about in our podcast, but that is coming to mind right now is Stitch Fix. And their whole idea is we'll send you the clothes and then you can send them back. And what mm-hmm. you're you're saying is that because I can imagine that when you get to that value range, there's probably more volatility, right? Like there's more, the pricing is a little bit wilder. And so if you can be, you have an opportunity. It's if actually,
1: you- in a funny way, it's actually less volatile. So used cars depreciate more the newer they are. Once you get to like a six, seven, eight-year-old depreciation is much less than if you're selling a two-year-old car. Now there's more recondition. So the, the challenge with value inventory is, is reconditioning. There's more hours of reconditioning that you have to put in. The value added of that reconditioning is very high because every dollar you put in makes the car a lot better. That's not necessarily the case with a two or three year old car, Um, and so you have to be really good at predicting what reconditioning will be needed, and then frankly choosing what reconditioning you will do and you will not do. Uh, The choice we make is we fix everything that's safety related. We do not fix everything that's cosmetically related because we found that for these vehicles, our buyers don't care about the look and feel of the car. They care about the safety of the car more. And they know what they're doing. Like when you're buying an 8000 thousand dollar car or a 10,000-hour car, you kind of know what you're getting into, which is that it might not look perfect, but you want it to be safely perfect, right? But you're comfortable with it not looking perfect because you're saving a ton of money on, the, on that look and feel. That's the kind of key learning for us from the perspective of like how to do these value vehicles is that, Don't put in so much money trying to fix appearance. Put in the dollars into fixing safety, but give consumers a really good deal on that vehicle. Um, And that's a good outcome for us as a business, and it's a good good outcome for the consumer. There's plenty of places we can buy value cars, right? On um, private party, like buying from another individual, most of what you buy there is is, is in the kind of valuation segment. And then there's independent dealers, meaning dealers that are not franchisees. They only sell used cars that sell mostly value inventory about 55-60% of what they sell will be value but these are not really great consumer experiences either from this independent dealer or from a private party purchase shift is kind of unique in that we offer this amazing consumer experience digitally and we offer value inventory that's not the only inventory you sell, but that is one of the differentiating factors of, of what we do
0: okay and the you mentioned the dealers again there and i i I remember from looking at the S1 and then I was just trying to pull it up now, And I, but you mentioned providing services to dealers too, because I'm curious how you, like, how do you describe your fit in that? You mentioned them also as competitors. So kind of how is that? And also I should mention you have a relationship with Lithium, Lithia Auto Dealers, LAD? Well, is
1: a shareholder in Shift, and that's it. I mean, they're one of our many, many shareholders. They're a big national car level both new and used, but, you know, primarily new, their franchisees, you know, they own BMW, Ford, GM, et cetera, stores. They're very big as a dealer. They're the, I think, third largest dealership group in the country, but they only own like 250 stores or something like that, right? So this is the, the thing about this market is that fragmentation is crazy because you can be a master player and you'll own like, you know, a tiny portion of the stores out there, given that there's 30... There are 30,000 stores out there in total. And we have talked about the fact that there is an opportunity to become a marketplace for dealers in addition to selling our own inventory. That's a, it's not in our model. It's not part of like, hey, go do that today. It's upside opportunity to what we're doing. But when you look at Amazon and Amazon's like, you know, the best analog to what we're doing in, in many respects for us, you, you'll see that, you know, their growth in the last five, 10 years has been massively driven by third-party inventory, which is actually much more profitable inventory for them than selling their own items. So when you buy from Amazon, you oftentimes buy from somebody other than Amazon, but Amazon does the transaction and Amazon does the fulfillment for them. And that model works really well for the third-party seller and it works really well for Amazon as well. And we think that something similar to that could happen with with dealerships, where we're not suggesting dealerships are not gonna do their own sales, of course they will, But if they listed cars with a shift, and we're talking like 50 cars per dealer, let's say, from like 10 dealers, right? So in a a given region. So now we have 500 more cars in that region that we're listing. We could offer fulfillment to them where we come to their lot, pick up the car, take the car and test drive to the consumer, exposing that car to an incrementally new customer. Because there's a radius around the dealership of like 10 to 20 miles uh, around which people will come to the dealership. If you have to travel much further out than that, you will not travel to that dealership. We'll talk to a different dealership. People do not want to commute very far to go to a dealership. But with our model, because the test drive is brought to the consumer, we can actually travel much further out than 20 miles and, and suddenly expose that vehicle to the consumer that that dealer will never normally attract. Uh, and so that's, I think, the, the value add here is that we can kind of scale to a consumer that otherwise they would never engage, which is why a third-party reseller of Tissues or nuts or whatever else uses Amazon, right? Because they attract some consumers to their own channel, but Amazon offers them consumers that they otherwise would never be able to attract.
0: So it's sort of like a cars.com on a valet version of cars.com because you're actually okay, bringing- so it.
1: Cars.com just on listing side, right? Cars.com's right. goal is very different from what I described. They want to have every dealer, including ships, list cars with them and they want to give consumers, hey, these are all the cars that you can sell, buy in, in your- geography, show me zip code five miles from the zip code, 10 miles from the zip code, right? They want to have everything listed. I'm not suggesting I want everything listed. I'm suggesting we, we pick a few dealers and allow them to list. They maintain our quality standards in terms of reconditioning, et cetera, et cetera. But then we fulfill for them, which is something that's very different. So it's more of an Amazon style approach versus a that. Got
0: it. Okay. So. I wanted to get, get into 2020 specifically, because 2020, you know, has been a wild year for everybody, but shift, I think you at some point referred to the challenges. Obviously, everybody was kind of locked down in Q2. Used car demand has been a very interesting market in general. You ultimately decided to merge with a SPAC and go public. So like a lot, those were the very abbreviated cliff notes, but like, it's been a big year for shift.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's. So I've had like a crazy 2019 in my personal life and then a crazy 2020 in my professional life. So in 2019, I got married and had children. And so like, oh, like, oh my God, like a marathon. And I was kind of getting ready for like a more quiet and steady state as you go, 2020. Uh, and it seemed to be okay in, in January and February. And then, you know, March happened and like it all went kind of nuts. And who could have, like, i literally feel like I've been running a marathon at a, at a sprint pace <laughs> ever since then, uh, you know, in a nonstop way. And some amazing things have happened as a result of it. But obviously, like, first, let's apologize. It's been horrible for a lot of people. A lot of us who work from home and can work from home, et cetera, don't, I think, fully appreciate the extent to which it's hard for so many people, right? Like, frankly, like, in many ways, I'm better off today than I was on March 1st of this year, personally. But, like, that's not true for so many people. Uh, And I think that whenever I talk about this, we have to, like, I didn't say that first because I think a lot of people don't. And and I think mean, it makes me feel kind of frustrated. And, and so I want to put that kind of out there first.
2: Secondly, COVID, COVID lottery winners, we call them, which yeah, is exactly. I mean you're right. I mean, you you were your business, you could have not have been anticipated, and it's definitely a, an indirect beneficiary of a very unique event. Totally.
1: So when we we were, I won't say lucky, but a little bit ahead of a lot of people because we have a board member Emily Melton who started kind of pinging me in about early February, saying, "Hey, this COVID thing is going to be a problem. Start planning for it." And she had about six weeks of foresight versus everybody else because I think everybody else was like March fifteenth, like holy cow, versus like Emily was like earlier, better. And so we developed the plan in late February after thinking about it through the month of February. But hey, what would happen if this? happen in the U.S. as well, right? Like at this point, not only China had COVID, but also Italy was going through lockdowns and whatnot. And so like, what if that happened in the U.S.? What would that impact on our business? And so we developed a plan to do some fairly aggressive furloughs as a business because we need to be very cash constrained, right? Like we need to be very careful with cash. We were planning on doing a fundraise in Q2. And if that was going to be delayed, then we need to really kind of ensure that we bought as much time as we could. And so we furloughed a ton of people, which was very difficult given that you were doing it in, a, in the middle of what was going to be an economic uncertain time. And in the cor- at the corporate level, for anybody who has a salary, we actually took a pretty steep pay cut. We just cut salaries 25% across the board um, or reduced salaries 25% across the board with an assumption that you know, in 2021, we'd pay them back. And so we implemented a lot of those changes kind of in late March and, and early April. And Just hanker down for what we thought was going to be a really difficult year. We stopped buying cars almost completely, and we started just kind of sell through our inventory. We were like, look, we got to sell as much inventory as we can. We're not sitting on depreciating inventory coming out of us. Now that was a huge mistake. It turned out (laughs) that demand was going to jump uh, like in ways that we've not seen in a long time. And so I wish I actually had bought as many cars as we could have in, in April and May, but we didn't. It is what it is. And then you know, we started to see demand kind of get back to. Was I normal by mid-April, um, and we actually started to call people back uh, to work because demand was more there. We still weren't willing to like buy cars, because we didn't know where this would end. Right, that we didn't know where lockdowns would end us, and so we just stole through a ton of inventory um, all through Q2. And then, you know, when it became clear that lockdowns would be lifted in June, we started to buy more cars. And what happened after that was, you know, really interesting in that. Demand was uh, actually much stronger than anyone anticipated. I think a few things played into that. Number one is people are like, look, I need transportation and I do not want to be using public transportation or Uber and Lyft because um, I don't feel safe. Um, number two is people actually moved out from cities into suburbs more and that drove demand for, for vehicles more so as well, right? Like that's just the reality. Thirdly, I think the fact that taxes were moved from uh, April to, to July really drove summer sales as well normally you see an uptick in sales in april because of the tax season as tax returns come back people utilize those tax returns for kind of discretionary purchases and the two biggest discretionary purchases people make is a vehicle or a vacation and in this case you couldn't even go on vacation so the only like vehicle was a logical place to put into and then frankly the stimulus checks also helped the market as well right because again for a lot of people who didn't lose their job Stimulus checks were just an extra income. If you're a family of four, you're getting like three or $4,000 of stimulus check. That's like you put that into some form of discretionary spend and car was an, an, an item that people put into. So what we saw was huge demand for cars, not enough new car inventory because a lot of the manufacturers had been shut down for two months. So they didn't have supply of stuff and used was kind of where people went. So demand for the summer was very, very strong, uh, which was really interesting. So... It was a good summer, frankly. And then concurrently with all that, for us, you know, we had to plan, hey, what are we going to do about capital? And so I had heard about SPAC transactions in 2019. Uh, Another board member of mine, Manish Patel, uh, had sent me a deck in the summer of 2019 telling me, hey, this is like an interesting product. Maybe you should learn about it. And so we had spent some time, you know, meeting with banks in the fall, learning more about how SPACs would work and what they did. That led to... As as the things picked up in the in the spring, we're like, okay, what should we do? And the bankers are like, that's a really interesting option in this environment. If you look at the market dynamics, the stock market was picking up while the private market was not moving as quickly in terms of fundraising and kind of opening up. And then concurrently, we knew that Room actually was saying, Hey, we're gonna actually go public. And they were like maybe the first company to in tech to go public post-lockdowns. And everyone's like, really, can you do that? But like, They did, because it turns out the market actually was very much demanding activity. And so for us to kind of follow on the heels of them going public with our business, you know, starting to see dramatic improvements made a ton of sense. And so the best way to do that quickly was to do it through a SPAC transaction. And so uh, we jumped on that and, you know, started talking to SPACs in early to mid-May, I forget exactly what day, but then had an LOI signed by the end of the first week of June. One of the beauties of spectrum, I think that you can move very, very quickly. And, and we did, right? Like we went from no conversations in early May to a bunch of conversations by mid-May to an LOI signed by June and then a, a pipe announced by the end of June, which was an incredible kind of run uh, in terms of speed, but we should do that. But
2: Did you do this all over Zoom?
1: It was all done over Zoom. Like literally where I'm sitting now is where I sat for, I've sat for the last you know, nine months or something. In this chair, I had my team move one of our Zoom room setups from the office to my house. So I didn't have to use my computer. And so I have like a really big screen and a Logitech uh, camera and a Polycom. And all I do is kind of talk on Zoom. And so we would, for the pipe, we did seven, six or seven days of um, pipe conversations with investors. We would start at five in the morning. And we'd go straight for the next 12 hours within Mm -hmm. like 15 minute meetings with 10 minutes in between. So it was kind of like crazy. The the effectiveness of of video roadshow is just incredible because you can talk to so many more people in in a given day, right? Like normal roadshows, if you got four investors in a day, would be considered a success because you'd have to go from investor to investor, traffic time, whatever. You'd have to get on planes to go from Boston to New York to you know Washington D.C., then fly to the Midwest, and fly to the West Coast. All the stuff, which in this case you just didn't have to do. So it was really, really effective. And frankly, I think it allowed investors to know the business more because they could ask more questions. Right? Like you could ask investors could ask for, for a follow-up more easily, etc. So I, um, I mean, frankly, one of the big revelations and changes for me is how much more effective video now is than it was say five years ago. And whereas, you know, we would probably not felt that comfortable doing this five years ago, now it's a lot more possible. And, you know, then there's, of course, the question, like, what's this going to do to work yeah. as well, right? Like, I literally moved to California to start my second company in California, because I didn't want to do it on the East Coast. Today, that might have been a lot less necessary <laughs> versus, you know, in
2: 2010. And that's funny, because you I looking at your background, you worked on Google Helpouts, which mm-hmm. product-wise was essentially kind of like video assistance yeah. expert.
1: But video was not as strong then, right? like Hangouts was a great product for or you know, nine, but video's come a very long way since then. I mean, I, look, when I moved to the US in 1992 from Georgia, the country which had just become independent from the Soviet Union, I literally would talk to my parents maybe like once a quarter because they would need to call me in a satellite phone. And this is like, you know, you'd have to say stuff and then you have to stop and wait for a minute for them to hear it. And then they would start talking. And if you kind of interrupted each other, you couldn't actually hear each other because there was like a 30 second to a minute delay in in the conversation. So then like fast forward to like 2011, I remember I was driving from my house to Google's office and I have my dad on Hangouts in my car where he can like see my face through the camera while I'm driving. And so I'm like, you no, know, we've come such a long way from like 1993 to 2011 uh, where you could like do that. And by the way, you're doing that for frame. So versus like it was like $8 a minute or something uh, back in 1993. And so this massive change. But then like when you think about how much more change happened since then in terms of what's possible um, through video technology, it's really incredible. And uh, it's making work a lot easier for a lot of people again you're talking like COVID winners versus not, right? Like for those of us who do this type of job, uh, it's a lot, a lot easier.
2: Quick question, going back to the the capital raising. And I mean, uh, we, we've the SPAC thing has obviously been a, a very hot thing in, in public markets and it's been talked about a lot. And, and so has been mispricing of IPOs and so on and so forth. With respect to shift and coming into COVID, let, let's say before COVID, had you given much thought about, the horizon of actually being a public company? I mean, were, was this something you, if, if I had talked to you in, in February, you'd be like, yeah, that's crazy. It's a couple of years. Well, our
1: thinking was raise a private round in 2020 and then go public in 2021.
2: Okay. Kind of so it wasn't so it wasn't exactly like way down the road. You were no, you know it were, wasn't way down,
1: so like we had audits done, you know, we had two years of audits for 2017, 2018, and we're literally like nearly finishing the 2019 audit when these discussions happened. Now it was like a private company audit, not PCOB, because nobody does PCOB unless you need to do it. But you know, we were much more ready. I mean, I talked to a founder yesterday who was asking me questions about how a staff works, and he's like, I'm like one of the questions, like, do you have audit And He's like, No, we've never done that. So, like we were much more ready for that versus a lot of companies, I think. Um, Because we knew that we would be a public company. Again, just looking at Carvana and what they had done, uh, it made a lot of sense to get into the public markets quickly and and kind of take advantage of them. And so we were prepared, but obviously like this all moved faster than we had initially planned, which is totally okay. It has been actually a really good outcome for Shift. I think that SPACs are a great product for companies like us, where timing is a factor. And where sizing wise, you are sub billion and a half dollars in enterprise value. I think stocks make a lot less sense if you are a $10 billion company. Uh, they still could make sense if you want to raise a lot more capital then underwriters would be willing to underwrite uh, for whatever valuation you have, right? Normally, underwriters are willing to underwrite maybe 10, 15% of your enterprise value in an IPO. So if you're a $2 billion company, you'll raise, you know, 200 ish million dollars, maybe 250, 300 million dollars in an IPO. In a SPAC, a $2 billion enterprise value company could easily raise a $600 million round, so to say, between the PIPE and uh, and the SPAC merger. So SPACs do allow you to raise a lot more capital uh, if you need it for uh, whatever valuation you are at. But then for like sub billion and a half dollar companies, they're a great vehicle for going public, which because it's harder to do an, an underwriting there and, and the amount of cash you're raising is less, et cetera. So I think they're here to stay and they're a really good product. We're really fortunate that better and better sponsors are entering the market. There are a lot of sponsors out there. And you know, I think what people should really think about is who has experience, either because they're a repeat issuer or because people involved in the sponsorship have done this in some way. What you don't want is people who have just never done this before. And I think we've seen a lot of sponsorships show up that like just kind of saw this opportunity and had never been involved or close to a stack and are now like, oh, we're going to do a stack. It's pretty easy to raise the IPO of a stack. Like as long as you have a strong team, you'll get the money. But then the problem is on the execution side on the back end, right? Like there's a lot of details. And so like in our case, we were really fortunate because the Cohens, who were our SPAC sponsors, had already taken three companies public through a SPAC in previous years. I mean, I think they're now up, up to like seven since then. And we were one of those seven. So they have a lot more expertise in kind of how to do this. That's really beneficial. They have a whole infrastructure set up for how to do the dispatch. And again, you're trying to do a ton of stuff in a very short amount of time because you went from announced the deal on June 29th to being dispatched on October 15th. That's a lot to do in a very short amount of time. So expertise of the sponsor is something that I think people should really look at rather than like, Hey, it's a prominent name, but if it's a prominent name, it's never done a SPAC. Probably not ideal for you given the market dynamic today.
2: So you weren't exactly concerned about a negative connotation. I mean, looking at your background, Google, Draper Fisher invested, Merakai, Goldman Sachs last round. I, like there, one thing with the with the element of a SPAC, I guess, which a lot of people have seen today in the automotive space, for example, Nikola has been. You know, we, we've discussed that a few times. It's gotten a lot of heat for. Investor decks potentially stuff that takes advantage of the retail investor. I mean, you, you moved in '92, so looking back to let's say internet bubble and whatnot. Let's call them companies that are not ready for public markets, but have hit. A, let's call it a, a new group of overzealous investors.
1: Yep. So look, our you know our shareholder base is not very retail heavy when we de it was mostly kind of institutional.s I don't know where his them have not looked, but like. At the time of the SPAC, the vast majority, like overwhelming majority, was traditional long-hold institutional investors, which is not surprising for a business like ours. Obviously, there are businesses that have a lot more heavy retail support, right? Like some of the innovative EV or self-driving car companies are an example of that, but not the only ones by any means. I actually would argue that SPACs actually democratize growth stage investing opportunities, for the retail investor. I think what we've talked a lot about over the years is how companies go public later and that this incredible value accretion that happens between, say, Series C and Series E is limited to most consumers because only large institutional investors are able to invest in them. And people who invest in large institutional investors are mostly large institutional foundations, mutual funds, et cetera. And if you are more of a retail person or a small player, you kind of, Locked out of that incredible value accretion that happens, you know, from being worth 300 million to being worth five billion dollars. And the reason companies are staying longer is because going public for a traditional way is really difficult, in addition to whatever complexity of being public that comes along with it. If you go back 20 years, companies went public way smaller than they do today and way earlier in the process of their development, which then allowed people to accrue growth in that, right? When Salesforce went public at $500 million valuation or whatever that was, like, if you bought Salesforce as a retail investor then, you, you made an incredible um, kind of return on, on that day. But those tax companies would not go public. SPACs are a means for those companies to be able to go public. In some ways, they're bringing a lot of value accretion into the public market for investors to take advantage of. Now, people should be careful. People should read the prospectuses and read the materials that are out there. You go through a pretty aggressive SEC process with a SPAC, just like you would with a normal IPO. It's really not that different. And all the information is out there. It's actually more public than an IPO, because an IPO, you can file an S1 privately, do a bunch of editing privately, and only go public right before the IPO. In our case, everything was public from day one, right? The minute we filed our S4, it was public. So I think, um, sure, people might make mistakes, but it's also a great opportunity for people able to Take advantage of investing in companies that they otherwise wouldn't have had a chance to do if those companies did not become public. I'm a, you know, look, I'm a very big believer in the public market. I've kind of had that view for many, many years, even before I was an entrepreneur. Like, you know, in prep school, the first thing I would do in the mornings after a morning meeting was go to the library and open up the journal and read the journal. Like it was my first 15 minutes of my day. So <laughs> I don't know. I think that it's an incredible democratization opportunity of of enterprise over the last 200 years to have the public markets the way we do. And so I don't think it was great for a lot of companies to say private forever. And I think that if SPACs help more companies become public companies earlier, all in, that's a good thing. Does not mean that will not be mistakes. Does not mean that won't be bad companies that go out into the public market. But you need to think of it as an aggregate manner rather than like specific kind of one-offs that might be bad. When you're
0: in all those Zoom calls, and I want to get back to the business in a second too, but when you're in all those Zoom calls and you're negotiating and you're like, what are you focused on as far as what are you trying to, you you mentioned in hindsight for an investor, look at their experience or whatever, but like, take us into a little bit of the the boardroom when you're going through and when you're evaluating the difference between the SPAC and the IPO Like, what are the, what are you weighing? What are you trying to, I mean, obviously you want to raise capital quickly, et cetera. But like, what are are the, what was the challenge for you through that period? Well,
1: I think on the, look, our pitch would have been the same whether it was an IPO or a SPAC, right? They, maybe you could talk about more things in a SPAC process because you can actually have a forward-looking model, which you cannot do in an IPO. You can tell people more about the business. Actually, that's one of the reasons why for a smaller, younger company, SPACs are good because they don't have enough history, right? Like, Shift's only seven years old now. 20 years ago, a seven-year-old company was an old company for an IPO. Today, a seven-year-old company is like a super young company to go public, given that a lot of companies take you know, 10, 11 years to go public. So we're on the junior end of like age-wise, how quickly we went public. And so being able to talk about, hey, this is what we've done so far. This is what we want to do in the future is advantageous. You can do that in a SPAC setting. You cannot do that in a traditional IPO setting. But our pitch was very much focused on like, what does our business do? How are we going to scale it? What are the things we haven't done that we want to do in the future? Right? so like marketing, for example, is something we've not done much of. We've been digital marketing focused only. We need to build a much better brand, build awareness. Capital will allow us to do that? How will we accomplish that, that result? Talk about a kind of growth and market launches and like how are we going to do that? That's different from what other people have done, uh, et cetera. So kind of you know, doing a normal presentation, like walking people through it really critical to share the same information with investors at the same time. So you're going to like robotically going through and, and, and saying the same thing in, in meetings and, and ensuring that you stick to the same kind of set of information you're sharing um, that, so that everyone hears the same thing, which obviously like takes work to do. Like it's very high focus concentration to like repeat the same message 10 times. As far as, uh, you know, evaluation of like stock versus IPO, again, for us, timing, amount of money to be raised and... Speed made it's very clearly the thing we would do. You do all the same work in it. You just do it in a more condensed time. Have we done the IPO rod? Like, hey, we're going to go public through IPO in twenty twenty one. We probably would have started working on it in like Q four of twenty twenty, right? Like, we would have started working on the S one, filed it, gone, done it all in like nine month period, rather than a nine week period. So you kind of have more time and you're less rushed to do it. But the work that you do is 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 exactly the same. For me, I think the really big compliment here is goes to the team, both internal and external. We had incredible people working on this internally to get this stuff done, accounting, finance, et cetera. And and legal, obviously, as well. And then external folks, like our lawyers, our bankers, did a really heavy lift to get it done in such a short amount
0: of time. What have you found about what has it been that relatively abrupt transition to trading as a public company and, and with the whole de-spacking thing. So you're like sort of a public company, but not quite. And then you fully are as of October. Like what have you what is any big takeaways or sort of, you know, we, we were chatting a little bit before the call about
1: Yeah, look, to me the hardest thing, frankly, was the transition from like we closed the deal on um the 15th of or we closed the deal on the 13th of October. We listed on the public market on the 15th of October. And then we had an earnings call, like I think the eleventh of November. There was really no time in between. Like it was like a really fast turnaround. And there was really nothing a lot of the information that would have been shared. we were sharing monthly information during the process, but it was still you know challenging. to get ready for that. Like I wish I had, had two extra months to prepare for the earnings call, frankly, just like the quick turnaround was was it was tough. That was a little bit challenging, just get it done in time. The other thing that SPACs have that's a little bit harder is that you don't have as much coverage from the analyst pool. And so that's something you're going to work on over time to, to get to have rather than having it right away. But you know, that just it comes with the territory. One of the ways to mitigate for that is that you have a longer lockup than traditional IPOs do. So we have a year-long lockup rather than six months for our existing shareholders. But yeah, I mean, you're really trading already right away once you start announcing the deal, right? Because like The the SPAC shares are trading and and people kind of use them as a proxy for you. And so that that was definitely kind of out there. As far as like, you know, look, we are, I try not to check the share price every day, frankly. Like it's not something that I want to be doing.
2: How did you handle the earnings reaction? The stock dropped significantly after the first earnings. Were you like, uh, why?
1: (laughs) I try not to comment on the share price. It's going to do what it's going to do. So I'm not going to say anything about that. Our focus is on the long term, not the immediate term, and then we got Good to figure, execute to what we have said we're going to do and execute well. And I think everything else will kind of take care of itself.
0: Well, it's interesting you said that about the analysts because when you said earlier that uh, Spac enables you to provide projections, I was think I was thinking that some of the challenge with Spacs may be that the market isn't quite as sure of how to value things. So it's interesting that you mentioned that the analysts that could be like a part of the part of the story yeah, I there. Mean, I
1: think the. Um, what I meant by that is that it's, it's, come, it's a plus and a minus, it's a plus because you can actually tell clearly what you want to do in the future. It's a minus because you have a very specific number out there for what you're going to do in Q2, for example. of so, yeah. And most companies would give like a range, but I'm going to do from X to Y. And here it's like literally like to the dot, this number of what you're going to do. Now, I think what we're trying to tell folks is that, hey, that that's necessary for the transaction. We want to move guidance to a more range-based model, which is more appropriate for a company. And so for Q4, we kind of took and created a range for revenue and uh, gross profit and and the EBITDA, et cetera. And we want people to be okay with that. And I think people will be. I mean, that's like a totally reasonable thing to expect. You can have a range rather than specifically. You can't manage a business to like this concrete number. You know, things happen, right? Like that you need to manage for. And then we can give a view of, hey, this is what the forecast is from a to B, but we cannot be sure where in that A to B range we're going to land.
0: So, not to ask, I don't. I'm not looking for numbers, but I'm curious how you're thinking about. You mentioned earlier COVID and all the a really good summer. How are you like? How do you prepare for post COVID? How do you, given how unprecedented this year has been, how do you prepare for?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can't for one thing, but I think you what well, you can say you can have good guesstimates of what is going to happen. All right. I think that the trend of buying more e-commerce is not going to change. You know, I look at surveys from people about hey, like you've been buying groceries online now. Will you go back to the store? And the answer that most people are giving is no. My Husband, we used to love to go to the grocery store. And we're like, are we going to do that when COVID ends? And we're like, yeah, probably no. Maybe we'll go once a month, but we're not going to go every week because it's not worse. And by the way, if COVID had dragged on for three months, and then we had a vaccine in three months, and then three months after that, we were like back to the office in six months. The change might not have been as great, but in grand total, it's going to drag on for like, you know, 15 to 18 months. That's a pretty long time period. People's behavior is going to dramatically change uh, as a result. And getting them back to different is going to be hard. That, I think, puts e-commerce companies in a really strong position because it accelerated a change that was going to happen anyway. That change that was going to take five years or 10 years to happen, it happened in in. 10 months in effect. And so, but is there really such a big thing big
2: as a, a non e commerce company anymore? I mean, well, I mean,
1: you still have companies that are store first and e commerce second, and you have companies that are e commerce first. I think that's the fundamental distinction that, that exists. It's very tough for a company that has many, many stores out there to just give up on that. That's just the reality. And then, on, from the workforce perspective, like we haven't told our team what we're going to do yet in 2021, frankly, like. We just don't feel ready for that. But I think what you've seen is two types of changes. There is the Facebook style. Like you can be anywhere you want to be, don't care. And then there's a more of a Google style. Of, hey, we still expect you to look close to the office. And we expect you to come to the office three times a week. But you will work from home more than you did before. The, that's so far the announcements have, that have been made. I'm, I'm guessing that more people are going to end up in the Google mode than the Facebook mode, frankly. The productivity has been very, very strong in the last nine months. There's no question about that. People have worked very hard. I also do think some of this productivity is artificial. I don't think people can work as hard all the time forever. <laughs> and when you don't go to meet people, you don't go out to the restaurant, you don't go on vacation, et cetera, and you kind of, well, all you have left yeah. is to do work. That's not <laughs> gonna be the state once, you know, people yep. are vaccinated, et cetera. So I still think there'll be an advantage to an office We'll see. I I don't know how we're going to come out on this yet. We have not really, frankly, made a decision. We have more immediate things to deal with right now. But it'll be a a topic to discuss in Q1 and and figure it out. Lastly, you're you're a
2: regional business, right? So uh, as of right now, I mean, you're essentially growing from one regional market throughout the rest of the U.S., right? Totally.
1: And so for us, look, we have had our corporate team working from home. Our sales team is working from home. But our operations team is in the office every day. So frankly, our main focus right now with COVID in the next three, six months is keeping our team safe, right? Like we are, you know, we have very strict protocols on mask wearing, hand washing. If you're sick, don't come in, et cetera. Obviously, asymptomatic spread is the most dangerous thing. That's why masks are so critical. And we actually just now transitioned our entire operation to starting wearing N95 masks because now they're more available. And so... We've kind of upgraded from regular masks to a 95 mask for everybody. And we're, you know, in January, we're going to start testing uh, regularly as well on a weekly basis, given that the winter is going to be a tough winter from the numbers perspective. And we're going to kind of do everything we can to to see if somebody is potentially sick and then not have them come to the office. But the focus for us, it's going to be a tough three, four months here coming up in December, January, February, March. Uh, I think people need to be prepared for that. Fortunately, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but we also need to be cognizant that the light's further away than we think it is. I think everyone's like, oh yeah, by March, everything's gonna be great, and no. By March, like we're just gonna be barely starting to vaccinate the larger part of the population, and the light at the end of the tunnel here is more in September, not in, not in March.
2: And I'll take, I'll take June. I'll split that between you. <laughs> sure. I mean, look, I, um, it's sooner I, the I
1: really need to go on vacation, so yeah. I have a vacation week planned in June with the hope that we can get a shot in April and then we can go on vacation in June, right? Like that's the, does that work that'd be great, but I still think it's going to be longer than
2: that. So going back to those dynamics that Daniel was touching on, because you hit upon the, the key drivers of, let's call it the COVID market in e-commerce, and then also in the automotive space, constrained supply from automotive manufacturers, which has led to something you don't ever really see when you talk about used cars, which is the price of used cars rose, I think, it's 8% in, in July, something like that. July wow. Yeah, I
0: think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You so like that. in terms of the history, I think when I was looking at it in the last 100 years, yeah, you, you haven't seen that. So unprecedented in terms of the pricing dynamics, which driven by supply, right? So when you think about it in terms of a, we had the issue with coins in circulation, has there been something in the car used car market, particularly for you from a velocity standpoint, which was drove all these dynamics in COVID where you had a shortage of used cars? You got less people turning over cars, then you have demand outstripping supply that drives price up, which drives certain dynamics in your business. And now we're looking forward 12 months out to a vaccine, and you had stimulus and liquidity and, and all these other factors, and you're about to reverse all these things potentially.
1: I can I mean, understand. No, I don't think that this year and we'll see where the numbers come up. But I don't think you're going to say, like, oh, 50% more used cars sold in 2020 than any any other year, right? It's not like we have we have this massive volume shift. I think what's happened is that you had way less cars sold in, in April and May. And then a lot of that volume moved into the summer. So that caused pricing to be higher and the speed of sale was faster uh, for cars. And so you were still able to keep a really good GPU with faster speed of sale. I think we're now back to more normal speed of sale and more normal GPU. Okay. The shift, I don't think it's one way or the other great the 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 summer was good, but you know 2021, our focus is the same as it was going to be. We're going to double the business, you know, from 195 million in revenue to 400 plus million in revenue. And we're going to really focus on our gross profit, especially the back-end gross profit, uh, back-end gross profit, the financing, warranty, et cetera. We do not make anywhere near as much money on that as a typical dealer does. Um, our numbers, they're kind of like, in the say, 750 range or so. But we believe that number could be in, say, two years at like 1200 to $1,300. And we want to really make as much progress as we can on that gross profit next year. And so that's where our focus is going to be. So we have a ton of upside opportunity in our back-end gross profit on the business. So the fact that we had good front-end GPU in in the summer isn't even here nor there. We are on a kind of path to $2,500 in gross profit at the end of 2022, so two years from now. And part of achieving that is doing really well on the the back-end gross profit, which is where we're going to focus on uh, next year.
2: So you're basically saying that from a structural standpoint, because of the underpenetration and essentially are being the the huge spreads that have existed in the the opaque used car pricing market, that you're not worried about some sort of COVID hangover. Like if I was to talk to you about Apple and I'd say, who hasn't upgraded their notebooks, kids, school equipment? And if I'm Apple supply chain and I'm looking at MacBooks for next school season, I'm going to expect some sort of hangover. If I'm, let's say, Amazon, and there's like a jailbreak by September of next year of everybody traveling and eating out more, I'm going to say incrementally from a GDP standpoint, we're going to see less consumption post-COVID. Whatever you want to call the COVID hangover that it is. And then you have the liquidity dynamics in the market, which I mean, you know, what's left? Yeah, we have, I think there was 10 SPACs this week that all listed at premium to cash, you know, 1050, 1080, 1090. So these types of grease things if you remove them from the wheel because of where your business is at its stage in the life cycle, like you said, you didn't see a demand dynamic that was particularly unique or, or let's call it, like we said, COVID lottery winners earlier. Yeah, structurally benefiting e-commerce wise, behavior wise, but you're not looking at it and be like, OK, there's a cliff like we had. There was one guy he had a great post and I shared it with Daniel, an Amazon seller of dog cages. Uh, send it to you afterwards but he, he his gross profit in the last year is more than he's made in the last decade and he's pet demand right yeah
1: um no i i think and i don't so to answer your question i don't expect any kind of hangover issues next year for the automotive market maybe for smaller dealers that'll be one but for us i don't think so i think for us if anything we have a ton of tailwind following us into next year with because i don't think the dynamics of e-commerce transition etc Are going to continue. And frankly, the company's in a much stronger position than it's ever been, right? Like we've never been in a stronger position as a business as we are going into this coming year. So I think it's going to be an amazing year and and we're super excited about it.
0: George, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been a lot of fun. appreciate you sharing and looking forward to seeing how shift shifts into 2021. Awesome. Thank
1: you so much. I really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at @DanielShortman and at AkramsRazor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by SoCal.